sometimes over the months leading up to Christmas, we notice, don't we, all those subtle changes that take place. The Christmas ads start appearing probably at the end of October these days, don't they? And then uh, at school, we start learning our paths for the Christmas play, don't we? And uh, there's all sorts of other things we see in the shop windows, Christmas decorations appearing probably around about the 1st of November, if uh, I can remember. Things start to change, don't they? And also, what we notice as we go to the shopping uh, halls and malls, we notice that the background music changes, doesn't it? You know, you hear these sounds in the background, and out come all the 70s, 80s favourites, don't they? We hear them, Slade, and uh, all the other things that uh, we listen to, and... And sadly, in many ways, these have come to form part of Christmas for the world around, don't they? If you go to a Christmas concert, you very rarely hear a carol. It's all these pop songs. But gradually, the, uh, uh, the music changes, the background changes, and we even hear included uh, rather mangled versions of our favourite precious Christmas carols. They're popularised, they're turned into canned music, aren't they? And they're quite awful. But we notice that the soundtrack to our lives changed. The, the radio, I said the radio, not the wireless, yeah. Uh, the radio, the radio starts to play Christmas carols and if you listen to the station I listen to in December, they play lots and lots of carols and it's good to hear they're sung in traditional ways. And music, plays an enormous part in our Christmas celebrations. How many weeks did we practice for the carol concert? Yeah, we started just after half term, we practiced. The young people and also somewhere a couple of trumpeters we had this year, helping us to uh, rejoice. So there's a lot of preparation, lots of things change. We stop having Sunday school lessons and we start singing. And so this morning, I'd just like us to focus on some of those issues. The issue of music. Now, I wonder, you need two books this morning. You need, first of all, your Bible. And you're going to need a hymn book this morning to follow and work with the message. Someone look up for me the first hymn we sang. Tell me the name of the author. Tell me when the author lived. Who's found it? One of the young people somewhere? You can all read, can't you? Yes. Yes, uh, Levi. Thank you. It's good to have you here. 1692 to 1763. That's right. And what was his name? John of Who's going to look up the second hymn? Philip Brooks. Yeah, and the dates? 1835 to 1893. Right, third hymn. Who's going to look up the third hymn? Isaac Watts, 1674 to 1748. Yeah, what a hymn writer he was too. And the one we haven't sung yet, the last hymn, yes. Kieran. Charles Wesley, 
So what do you notice about those <coughs> hymns that we're singing today? What do you notice about them? Anybody? They were. They were. Have you noticed the fact that the hymns we sing today, some were written over 300 years ago. Some were written over 150 years ago. Now it seems strange to someone like me who's reached such an age that uh, in this modern, modern, postmodern, if you like, uh, technological, sophisticated age, that we're still in many ways happy to sing hymns that were written three, two, three hundred years ago. Doesn't it seem to be against the modern culture? Everything has to be modern. We need new things. There are new gadgets coming on the market every day. New computer games, new software. Everything is modern and yet the whole of the nation, in fact throughout the world, people are still happy <coughs> to sing hymns that were written three, two, three hundred years ago. Doesn't it seem strange? Perhaps it's because no one's been able to improve on them. But I'll leave you to have your own thoughts about that. Well, anyone know? Let's talk about uh, Christmas hymns. Anyone know when the very first Christmas hymn was written? Who's not been listening? Who's not been listening? When was the very first Christmas hymn written? About 2,000 years About 2,000 years ago, yes. Who was listening yesterday morning? What did Jonathan speak? Who, whose name did Jonathan mention? Mary. Mary, that's right. And you turn to that hymn, can't we? As we turn to Luke chapter 1, let's read that hymn, shall we? <coughs> So we put away our hymn books and open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. I know we read it yesterday. We're going to read it again today. In many ways, Christmas talks are like number 11 buses. You wait a whole year for them and then three come along together. So, let's read together Luke chapter 1 verses 46. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Saviour, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exhorted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Now that, of course, is not written like the hymns we sing. It's very much the way the Jewish people would write their poetry. You only have to go back to the Bible's own hymn book 
to the book of Psalms. These were the songs that the people of Israel would sing. Imagine in your synagogue service and the leader of the service says, now we're going to sing Psalm 119. Well, there you go. Perhaps that's why it's divided in small divisions. But of course, we can look at this, uh, these words, and we can join with Mary. Um, she was, of course, going to be, she had received the announcement of the angel Gabriel and she was going to be the mother of Jesus. And what does she do once the angel has spoken to her? She goes to share, as Jonathan told us yesterday. She went to share with her uh, cousin, a relative, Elizabeth. And it's while she's there that she breaks into this wonderful hymn. It has a Latin name. Latin scholars up there. What's the name of this? Have you come across this? Well, the hymns at Christmas are the Magnificat. And then there's the one that the angels sang, Gloria in Excelsis. And who knows the third one? Come on, translate for me, Nunc Dimittis. Anybody? Now let thy servant depart in peace. And we'll come uh, to consider that thought a bit later on. But here is Mary. And she speaks, doesn't she, initially, in terms which are very personal. Look at verse 48, as we did with Jonathan yesterday. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. God could have chosen a rich, powerful, perhaps even princess, living in a palace. But no, he chooses to come to a lowly Jewish maiden and he chooses uh, to grant to her the gift of the holy child he has come to this lowly maiden who as far as the rest of the world was completely insignificant was completely unknown and yet the whole world for generations as she says here have called her blessed because she was chosen by God and surely everyone here this morning, we can echo this thought, can't we? We can identify with Mary and echo these words that God is mindful of us <coughs> as individuals. God is mindful of his own people. God who is sovereign over all principalities, sovereign over all powers, sovereign in creation, is eternal. He cares for his people and this is surely the theme of Mary's thought here she recognises that she is weak <coughs> that she is insignificant but that God has regarded her God is mindful of her God is the great one who cares for his people he says Jesus said as he went to heaven behold I am with you always even to the end of the age and what we read here as we go down this uh, hymn of Mary's is that God not only cares for his people but he has confounded the rich and the wise and the strong 
And he has put them down, he has put them out. He's put down the mighty and the proud, those who would oppress the weak, and also sends away the rich. There's no value for salvation in money, strength, wealth and power. No, it is to the meek and the uh, weak and to those who are lowly in heart that Jesus Christ comes. And so we look at this song and we see that God is here fulfilling his promises all those centuries before to Abraham and to our fathers. And of course, as we would expect, uh, that Mary is referring here to her Jewish heritage, uh, to the heritage that she is from the line of Abraham, from the line of David. We can follow that royal line, can't we, through the Old Testament, all the way through the Scriptures. And so it's right, and it's right that we should praise our God, for he is mindful of his people. He raises up the lowly. Who are we? Who am I? That we should receive the blessings and the benefits of Almighty God brought down to lowly men. Okay, who can tell me who wrote the second Christmas hymn in the Bible? Anybody? Who wrote? Sorry? No, not quite. A little before that. Zechariah. Zechariah, thank you. Who was Zechariah? Who, who was Zechariah? He was the father. He's much neglected, I think, Zechariah, isn't he? He has this wonderful uh, uh, place in the scriptures. He was a godly man, wasn't he? What, anybody know what his profession was? Zechariah? He was a priest. That's right. So he was well in tune with the ancient scriptures. He would have known of the promise of the Messiah. And yet, strangely enough, he's made dumb because he has a doubt. He is made dumb. But once the child is born, and this, of course, is the child that his wife Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, was carrying. Once the child is born, he is given speech again. He is given speech. And we come to this uh, wonderful song here again, not written in terms of rhyming verse or written in, in the way that perhaps modern poetry is written. But if we turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 67... We find the song that Zacharias composed. <coughs> Speaking of John the Baptist, now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, 
might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. A new child, speaking of his son John the Baptist, a new child will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace and so in this prophecy in this song these are words that are inspired again as Mary's words were inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit all scripture is inspired and so these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit they are prophetic and uh, indeed the first part verse 67 to 75 focuses very much in many ways on the same thought uh, that Mary had that the Lord had provided a saviour he had provided a deliverer God had been faithful to his promises all those centuries ago and the work that was done in order that, as Zechariah says, we might serve him <coughs> without fear. And then he comes to speak specifically in the second part about his son, John the Baptist. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, by the remission of their sins and this indeed as we read through the scripture this is indeed what John the Baptist did he went before the way of the Lord prepare the way of the Lord make straight his paths and you know as we look at these things we see that the work that John the Baptist was called to do is also the work that the church has been called to do from the early days when the first 12 disciples went out to preach the gospel and the gospel was spread abroad the then known world and through the centuries uh, to the whole world that work today is our work isn't it that we are called in many ways to do this work look at the points that Zechariah makes here he says you will be the prophet of the most high are we prophets are we prophets of the most high well yes in many ways we are you see, we can both foretell, which we do Sunday by Sunday, a work which we do in our interaction with our neighbours and friends and colleagues at work, we foretell and foretell uh, the work of Jesus Christ, the work of the message of the gospel, the message of Christ and his gospel. And we can foretell, can't we, the coming judgment. Because if you like, the Bible provides that wonderful script we have the message there. We can, in our own day and generation, foretell the coming judgment. It is true. The Bible is true. It is reliable. Uh, there are many people in the world who delve into strange things. They try and foretell the future. Most newspapers have your daily styles to try and tell you what's going to happen. But of course, 
it's all in many ways demon inspired because no one no one knows the future apart from almighty God and his son the Lord Jesus Christ and so we can be like John the Baptist we can foretell and we can foretell, foretell. and then he goes on to say doesn't he you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of sins. Now tell me, how do we go before and prepare the way of salvation? Prepare the way of Jesus Christ? Well surely again in a similar fashion, the message of warning, the presentation of a God who is our creator, the presentation of the God who is offended by our sin and our rebellion. The presentation of a God who is a redeemer. A God who forgives and redeems. And also, perhaps importantly, perhaps we don't often think about this, being the channel through which the Holy Spirit will disturb the consciences, arouse the consciences of those around us to being those witnesses to the great grace and the mercy of Almighty God. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. The Lord Jesus <coughs> said to those disciples, Go ye into all the world, teaching men to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, as I've said, lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. These surely are the ways in which we prepare the way of the Lord, prepare his ways. We introduce men and women to the living God, the living God of the scriptures, Father, the Son and Holy Spirit. Sadly, as I commented, there is no God in Christmas in the world today, is there? Absolutely no God in Christmas in the world today. I was reading just very briefly the Christmas words of the Archbishop of York, Dr. Stephen Cotterell, and he makes the point over and over again. There is no God in our Christmas. There's no God in daily life. There's no God in politics. There's no God in anything. We're happy to serve the gods of this world rather than the God of heaven. And then Zechariah makes a third point. He says, through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And here Zechariah, a priest, well scored in the ancient Jewish literature, in the scrolls and testimonies of the Old Testament, is quoting from Isaiah, isn't he? The people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And surely, as we prepare the way of the Lord, then those who hear the word, those who come to know and to recognise and to have and begin a relationship with God, they certainly move from the darkness of sin into the light of the glorious gospel, into the light of the glorious salvation of our Saviour, the Almighty God. And He and the Holy Spirit are the ones who lead the saved soul, the, the repentant sinner. They lead them out of darkness 
into that glorious light. There is therefore now no condemnation who are in Jesus Christ. You see, God has deemed it right to draw his people together in the local churches, the ecclesia or the called out ones. And he does this so that we may lead one another in many ways out of darkness into the light. Week by week we're given light into the scriptures, aren't we? Week by week we're given encouragement to leave behind our sin and to walk in the way of the light, to walk in the way of peace. Together we learn to practice day by day Christianity probably one of the most difficult things to do. Excuse me a minute. If I do it, it We're back on track. You see, not all conversions are like the Apostle Paul, dramatic and sudden. No, it's time for many people it takes years and years of study and teaching for some even to gain assurance but indeed it takes years and years of teaching and study for us throughout our Christian lives to focus on these things to come to that full knowledge of the glory of our salvation to come to the full knowledge of who Jesus Christ is <coughs> And to do this, men and women must be brought to recognise their sin. They must be brought to recognise their need for salvation. And they must be brought to understand the great process of the Christian life. A life that is built day by day, that grows day by day, that leads day by day to that eternal light. The light of heaven, the light of the gospel of Jesus. And so we're taught. And of course the message of John the Baptist at that time was the eternal message of Christianity. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the fundamental reason why the Christmas Christ came into the world to save sinners. He says himself, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God has been faithful. Mary says this and... Uh, Zechariah says this, and we can say that today, that God has been faithfully fulfilling the promises of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And this message has been preached for the past 2,000 years. And it's still worth doing today because he commanded it. This is the message behind Zechariah's opening words, isn't it? Praise be to the God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Have we known the visitation of Almighty God in our lives? He has redeemed his people. He has bought them, he has paid the price, he has delivered them from the bondage of sin. He has redeemed his people. Okay. There are two further songs. What's the third one? Third one. I'll give you a clue. It wasn't composed by humans. The angels, thank you. The angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace 
to men with whom he is well pleased. Now, I'm not going to talk about this one because if you've got good memories, you remember that wonderful <coughs> message that Richard Evans brought to us a week or so ago. I don't think I could improve on that. And also, at the end of the service, we're going to sing Charles Wesley's amazing hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Who can improve on those words? Those amazing words, veiled in flesh, that the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. God is reconciled to men, says Charles Wesley. And those words have lasted and lasted 300 years. And I'm sure will last for many, many years. And probably that hymn is acknowledged by many to be the best and the greatest of Christian Christmas hymns of the Herald Angels. Well, time is passing and Christmas dinners are cooking, so we come briefly to the fourth song. Someone's mentioned it already. Simeon. That's right. The fourth song was composed at the time of the birth of Christ, and we turn to Luke chapter 2, <coughs> verses 27 to 32. <coughs> we'll go back to verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple and the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. <coughs> the angels had brought the news, hadn't they, that a Saviour had been born. And likewise, Simeon announces the truth that he is now looking at the child in his arm he is looking at God's salvation. Simeon understands, and it's been revealed to him, uh, that the Saviour has come to save. But not to save your people Israel only, the physical descendants of Abraham. But he's also come to save others, termed in scripture, the Gentiles. Simeon has been told that he would not die until he had seen the promise of the Messiah fulfilled. Now he had seen that promise fulfilled. Now he was content to die. It's a wonderful message. This is the, if you like, the beginning in many ways of the message being spread to the Gentile. Jesus Christ comes. He fulfills the Old Testament covenants. He brings in the new covenant of salvation by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now it is time for preparation for the message to be spread abroad to the Gentiles. And this is perhaps the Christmas song that we rejoice in as Gentiles. We are not part of that old nation, but we are those outside of the old covenant 
But we have a new and better covenant, as the scripture tells us. We have a covenant sealed with the blood of our Saviour, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout these four songs, we have seen, haven't we, a theme of praise, a theme of joy, a theme of rejoicing, a theme of thanksgiving. But we should remember, shouldn't we, that the birth is but the beginning of the outworking of the great plan, the eternal plan of Jesus Christ, God the Father and God the Son. That plan of redemption, that plan to bring salvation. Simeon, in his thought, goes on to turn our thoughts, not only to the salvation this child will bring, but what it would cost him to bring it. He speaks, doesn't he, of heartbreak. He speaks of sorrow, of the rise and fall of many, foretelling the events of Easter and the future that would come. And he mentions particularly, doesn't he, of the sorrow that will come personally to Mary as she will see her son hanging upon that tree. Christmas is and the event that has its essence the act of giving, isn't it? Christmas is a time of giving. The great gift of eternity, if you like, the great <coughs> gift that God has given is the gift of salvation, is the gift of redemption. Every man living, man, woman, child living, needs redemption. And therefore, every man, child, woman living needs the gospel. There are, of course, aren't there, many, many other gifts that God has prepared for us. We read that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven with whom there is no variable. Yes, there are many, many other gifts that God has made and prepared for us. But none of these gifts are available until we first receive the great gift of redemption. It is a free gift. The cost has been paid. How many of you, young people, how many of you paid for your Christmas presents? Did you say, here are mum and dad, here's some money, buy me some Christmas presents. No, salvation is like that. Salvation is free. Salvation is without cost except to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of a passage in the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, in this passage... He speaks on the subject of giving, giving our time, giving of our substance. And right at the end of that passage, he makes this statement. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Surely there's no better way to close a message on Christmas Day than to take these thoughts with us into the rest of this Christmas Day, into the coming days, Indeed, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.